what Christmas is all about? 95.7. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Here at Aspect Radio, we're kicking off the big budget holiday movie season by discussing this week's big release, The Star Studded, a tourist romantic thriller starring arguably the top male and female movie stars in the world right now, Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie. Why is everyone trying to kill me? Alexander Pierce stole big money from a gangster. They think you are him. The man's a criminal wanted in 14 countries. It's gone too far. You were part of a plan. This is exactly why she chose him to distract us. I am sorry I got you involved in all this. Why are you involved? It partners the two stars with a hot director, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, coming off his Academy Award win four years ago for his film The Lives of Others, and it features some appealing European locales and intrigue set therein. Jolie plays a woman of mystery, an assistant or lover to a billionaire on the run, who receives instructions to find the dupe to throw up the cops and gangsters hot on the billionaire's trail. Conveniently, there are rumors that the billionaire has received some mastic, some massive plastic surgery as to render him unrecognizable, so no one knows what he looks like. Depp plays that dupe, a mild-mannered, some might say bland, math teacher from Wisconsin, an American tourist who she meets at random on a train. So whether he likes it or not, the tourist is drawn into this intrigue. This looked like a pretty solid setup to me, I'd say. Uh, Hitchcock did a whole lot more with a whole lot less plot. So uh, this could potentially have the makings of what uh, could be a romantic, fun thriller, uh, a way to pass the time in nice-looking places along the lines of To Catch a Thief or something like that. Uh, but then other critics have, uh, to put it mildly, excoriated this movie. They're attacking it with uncommon vitriol. It has something like an 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, which is surprising, particularly given the movie's pedigree. So my question then is a simple one. Where do you fall in this critical battle over the tourist? I don't think anybody is going to call this anything greater than a mildly amusing diversion. So let's say, on a scale from mildly amusing diversion to worst movie of the year, where does your reaction fall? I think I fall, fall right in the direct middle of that. If aliens came down to Earth and told us to give them the best examples of what these two megawatt stars have to offer. I'm not reaching for the tourist. I'll put it that way. I would reach for something else. But I think with the tourist, you have basically a carbon copy in terms of idea, basic idea of Night and Day, a movie that came out earlier this year where you have these two big stars. You have one who is a person of mystery and intrigue, and you have the other who does not fit in that world at all and they're thrust into it and confused and they develop a bit of a romance. It's essentially the same movie. I prefer The Tourist, but it's only because it's a decent or let's say sufficient little spy caper set in this beautiful locale, this European setting that you've already mentioned. And never mind that the film is hardly about anything at all from the start and it really has no intention of or on engaging the audience from a plot standpoint. And I really think it could have been much, much worse. Once Paul Bettany's Interpol agents scoop up this foreign courier that has just delivered a letter to Jolie, the agents say, freeze, financial division. My eyes either rolled back 
just to the back of my head or they glazed over it a little bit. But thankfully, we're not treated to any sort of swing and miss economic crime comedy that likely would have had little to say about these troubled times, let alone entertain us. But seriously, this isn't that bad. And we see this 18 percentage rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And honestly, I don't really understand it. I think it has more to do with the perception of these stars and the kind of work we expect them to deliver on a regular and consistent basis. And if something isn't hitting the way we want it to, then we're happy to trash them. Well, not to mention Ron Donner's part, uh, writing the screenplay here with uh, Academy Award winners Julian Fellows, the writer of Gosford Park, and Christopher McQuarrie, the writer of The Usual Suspects, both of them have turned in far better, far twistier, far more interesting screenplays than this. And Ron Donner's part himself, having done so four years ago with The Lives of Others, following up that film with, uh, with a light trifle. I, I agree with you. I don't think this is a bad movie, but it's the sort of movie that you just sort of sit back and let happen to you in the theaters. You're not going to leave discussing the ins and outs of the, of the plots, because frankly, there's no tension. But complaining about a lack of tension in this movie is a little bit like complaining that your latest vacation was not life-threatening enough. It doesn't intend to uh, deliver on those grounds. It has enough action to render it passable and, and you know, pass the time, but it's, it's basically a travelogue with attractive people walking in and out of the screen. And you say it has enough action to make it passable, and I totally agree with that. But when I think back to what that action actually was, I think, well, there wasn't that much action after all. No, because there are two set pieces, one involving a rooftop chase and one involving boats in these canals in Venice. And both of these action sequences, quote-unquote, action sequences, quote-unquote, they move at a snail's pace. And that might be the point considering the locale, the, the Venice setting in particular. But I just think when they're, when they're conceiving these action sequences, I, I doubt they storyboarded them, number one. And it seems like they were already there. They looked around and they said, well, what could we do with these places? Let's think and have something ready by 5 o'clock when we're ready to shoot this thing. I enjoyed the boat scene. I think I, that, that didn't really get the heart pumping, but it was fun to watch. And, and you know, that's uh, it's one thing I want to talk about. This movie is very handsome-looking. It's photographed very nicely by John Steele. But, I mean, they're in Venice, to be honest. Anybody can make that look pretty good. Uh, John Seale is somewhat wasted, I would say, um, as, as is possibly for an Hinkle von Donner's mark. Uh, it sort of raises the question from Night and Day earlier this year, which was directed by James Mangold, who has proven pretty capable, but usually is sort of a workman director who moves from genre to genre, delivering generally passable efforts. Um, you know, what kind of director is needed to make a movie like this really get the, the blood pumping? You know, you had Hitchcock, who was known for, I guess, statelier paces, uh, who delivered something like The Catch a Thief, which I think is, for obvious reasons, a good point of comparison to this movie. But Florian Hinkle von Donner's mark, aside from framing his shots nicely, I mean, this seems pretty anonymously directed, wouldn't you say? It does seem anonymously directed, but you mentioned that the movie is handsome-looking, and last week you used that same term about loving other drugs in terms of 
it being anonymous, anonymously shot. I don't think that's the case this time. I wouldn't say that the cinematographer is necessarily wasted here. I think the movie does look good. The compositions are nice enough, but like you said, Venice will make anything look good. But I do wonder which director would be good for this sort of material. You have to think pretty hard about directors out there who are more than capable of sort of juggling action and comedy and these would-be confusing plot lines that involve uh, people with multiple identities and plot twists, and this movie has plenty of those. I don't think that this director necessarily fails, because I don't think this is a bad movie at all. Right. Uh, it's, it's certainly not great, but I do think that had you told me Brett Ratner had directed this movie, I might have believed you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean... You certainly wouldn't watch The Tourist and suspect that the director's previous film was a you know, critically heralded Oscar winner uh, about, I guess, Eastern German oppression. Um, With no laughs, right? I'm guessing I haven't seen that. It's, it's very good, but no, it's pretty solid. Um, where the director, I mean, where I guess Van Donnersbach does sort of fall short, and a lot of reviews do point this out, is in his, I guess, handling of the cast. Did Jolie and Depp make an impression upon you in this movie? Well, my question during and by the end of it was, what is Angelina Jolie even up to here? My question was, I, I mean, plot-wise, it, it's pretty clear what, what Johnny Depp is doing right in the movie. But what is he doing as a performer in this movie? Well, I think that he seems to be the only one trying anything at all. I think most people are just sort of walking through the motions. Jolie, she just walks around in evening gowns the entire time. She rolls out this so-so British accent, but what does that even accomplish? Right. And no doubt about it, she's a beautiful woman. I think at times scary looking in this movie, but that's uh, certainly neither here nor there. She's done some good work, but when you're the face of this Hollywood globe-trotting adventure where you play this international mystery woman, do something. Do something. Really, plot-wise, she just strolls around and she's being watched by these Interpol agents and we are, just like them, anticipating her next move. But what does Johnny Depp do in this movie? Besides play a cipher of a character who talks in some sort of unaffected, unplaceable American accent. You wish to report a murder? No. Some people tried to kill me. I was told you were reporting a murder. Attempted murder. That's not so serious. N no, not when you downgrade it from murder. When you upgrade it from room service, it's quite serious. Well, when it turns out that this movie is about little else other than this schlubby guy falling in love with a woman that he barely knows, there isn't much to dive into on our part, is there? No, there, there's not. But, I mean, I, I guess uh, a question is, why get Johnny Depp for this at all? Johnny Depp is an endlessly fascinating actor. He's proven this time and time again, particularly in roles that could have been, you know, really boring in the hands of lesser actors. Like, I'm thinking of his Jay and Barry in Finding Neverland, an Oscar-nominated performance that he just, I mean, say what you will about that movie, but that movie could have been totally middling if it weren't for Depp's really good. Well, it kind of was middling. I mean, it kind of was anyway. But he, I mean, you, you can't deny that he turns in a pretty good performance and makes it a lot more interesting than it should have been. And Depp has a tendency to do that in a lot of movies. He doesn't do that here. He just he just seems so flat the whole time. The whole time, I'm waiting for him to perk up and do something. I know that's not the character that he's playing. You know, 
like he said he's a schlubby guy from Wisconsin. But that's not Johnny Depp. That's not Johnny Depp. Why not hire anybody else from any other moderately attractive actor? And, you know, in the development of this movie, this movie passed through a lot of stages of development. At one point, I think Sam Worthington was supposed to play this main character, which I think Brad Pitt and another one. Tom Cruise was also Tom Cruise. So, I mean, it seems like at any point, at some point, they did just try to offer it to moderately attractive actors. And Johnny Depp was the one who they settled on for whatever reason. It's not a Johnny Depp performance as we've come to understand them. You know, it's not. Oh, it's a paycheck. It's a paycheck. It really is. That's the best way to describe it. I mean, it's a paycheck, though, in a, I guess, more offensive way to me than his really bizarre kind of awful starring role in Alice in Wonderland was. At least that was a paycheck in which he was trying to do something. And he was working with his dear friend and collaborator, Tim Burton. Yeah, he's just, he just kind of goes through the motions here. And, like, I mean, I sound like I'm really down on this movie. Again, I'm not. It's a way to pass the time. Mm-hmm. But when you consider the talent involved, I mean, I kind of do see where the 18% is coming from, if only because, you know, people are like, you know, they poured this money into this movie, they hired this talent, and this is what they got. Exactly. And then you have a guy like Paul Bettany, too, who we know is talented. He's been great in other movies, but he gets maybe the thankless role of the year as just this suit, this Interpol agent who is caught on the trail of these two people involved in this espionage scheme in Italy and France or wherever else they are. It's kind of like the night and day role that Peter Sarsgaard or Viola Davis plays or even the John Hamm role in the town where you just had this talented star there to fill the blank. Well, and, and Timothy Dalton is in this movie for two scenes. He's definitely superior, along with a, I don't want to spoil this, but a well-known, or moderately well-known, certainly recognizable actor who plays the red herring, so to speak, in this movie, without spoiling it so you go to IMDb and see who this is. Well, we've talked about Inception on and off on this show and on and off the show, and plenty of people have made this point that if this was Christopher Nolan's intention with the whole thing, what we learn at the end of the movie, or what we debate at the end of the movie, then the entire film proceeding, it's been a giant waste of time, essentially. I guess you could say that there's a reveal of sorts in this movie where you have to ask yourself if that's the case and what was the point. But if you do that, then you're, I think you're probably just far too tightly wound to even barely enjoy this thing. Yeah. I mean, the ending is dumb. There's no question. It does cast the ending at the end of the entire movie into, like, a, what, what was the point? But it's no dumber than the rest of the movie. I mean, if you can get past a lot of the other points uh, in the movie, you can, you can deal with the ending. I mean, it's... And if you didn't see it coming from the first five minutes yeah, of the movie, totally. then you aren't paying much attention, not that you really need to for this movie, but the film is playing nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. It's not that bad, we assure you. Coming up, my brother Graham stops by to tell us about what is in limited release in his neck of the woods up in the Big Apple, so stick around. This is Aspect Radio. What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a talking snowman before? Right behind seven. Welcome back to Aspect Radio. Joining us by telephone now is Ben's brother, Graham Flanagan, to tell us about what's in limited release. Graham, you get your pick of the litter up there, so tell us what you saw, but first, please begin by telling us why you haven't seen Black Swan yet. Well, Black Swan is going to be my pick uh, for this week. It's so limited release, so I tried to see it on Tuesday at Union Square at like 8.30, and it was sold out. So as you can tell by its uh, 
like the hot ticket right now in the movies. But uh, what did you end up seeing? Uh, all good things from um, Magnolia Pictures and Bob and Harvey Party Mark Standard, the uh, executive producers. And it is directed by this guy, Andrew Jarecki, known for the uh, Sundance winning, Grand Prize winning documentary, Catherine Friedman. And most recently, you know, the producer on Catfish, which uh, I know you know a lot of people on the show are a fan of. It's a story, a fictionalized story of a uh, famous, infamous murder scandal that involved a very wealthy New York family uh, that spanned 30 years from the 70s through uh, 2003 when the story is that they tell here in Kirsten Dunst. It's a beautiful young blonde who randomly meets in uh, love with a very wealthy heir to a real estate empire played by Ryan Gosling. And what starts as a, uh, an ideal romance slowly gets darker and darker, and Kirsten Dunst finds herself in danger of uh, being hurt by Gosling, who is kind of coming apart of the scenes uh, in a psychological sense for reasons that I don't want to spoil. You marry me? husband's handsome, you have money, and a perfect life. Your grandfather didn't ask me to join the farm. It was understood. Gotta finish up some stuff from my father. I've never been closer to anyone, and I don't know you at all. David, is there something wrong with you? You make me out to be this person that you think that I am. I'm not this person. Why would you give up everything just because of him? Well, uh, Graham, Ben told me that you were going to see this one, and uh, I actually ordered this on demand. It's available on Comcast. Uh, so I've seen this too, and uh, just to start the discussion, this movie, yeah, features Kirsten Dunst, I'd say, in a pretty good per- uh, supporting performance. She's certainly better in this movie uh, than she has been in, in a while. Uh, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that about... I guess 45 minutes from the end of the movie, she she's gone. She's out of the movie, leaving us with Gosling's character a pretty major jump ahead in time. So could you talk a little bit about, I guess, the momentum of the film? Because it, it, in my opinion, it sort of becomes a, a completely different movie at that point. But was that a problem for you like it was for me? No, uh, no. When it takes that left turn at the end, I thought that that's what makes this movie unique. And I was, I was scared, even though it had been engaging forever, but I was worried that it was just going to traditional way we're used to, but when it took that left turn, and <laughs> that I, you know, I won't go into too much detail about, I thought that I was like, okay, great, now I feel like I actually got my money's worth, and they didn't, the way that they resolved things uh, weren't, it wasn't as predictable, but I guess you disagree. Well, I mean, I guess my problem is you come to, I mean, this is a credit, I think, to Kirsten Dunn's to has seldom been, I guess, as engaging as she is in this movie. And I've had problems with her as an actress before, but she gives a good performance and sort of becomes the soul of this movie uh, in a lot of ways. That's not a knock against Ryan Gosling, but his character is supposed to be sort of alienating and increasingly so as the movie goes along. So when she leaves the movie, it's almost like, you know, all the oxygen in the room gets sucked out in a way. Gosling becomes, he's, he's, he gives a really good performance, and he goes to his pretty brave places, I'd say, near the end of this movie. Um, and, and the movie is resolved nicely, but I just felt like 
something was missing when Kirsten Dunst wasn't around. documentary 
filmmakers jump into immediately when they make their, their transition to fiction films. This movie has a surprising amount of supporting special effects, given that it's a period piece, and it sort of does take you to your 1970s-era Times Square that has been pretty faithfully replicated via CGI, which I was kind of surprised by. You know, you don't expect uh, somebody like Jarecki to jump right into that, but he handles that well. It's well shot. It's well paced, even though I think the steam sort of goes out of it in the, you know, the third act, as I said. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly, I would say, in the upper upper portion, I guess, of, of documentary filmmakers making that transition. Because, I mean, a lot of people have a, a rough time with it. And Jarecki, I mean, he seems like uh, he seems like an old pro, to be honest. Grant, thoughts on that? Yeah. Are, you, are you familiar with his work prior to All Good Things or Sisters? No, I haven't seen the, uh, the Unmasked Grand Jury Prize winner capturing Freeman. Um, no, I would definitely like to. The one thing I wanted to point out was the, uh, the, the couple of supporting performances from actors. I mean, it's a pretty dark you know, drama. And uh, there are a couple of performances from a couple of people you know from NBC, primetime comedy. Uh, Kristen Wiig has a role in the movie, which I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of until the opening credits. Yeah, her name. <laughs> and uh, she, she borders on common relief in the movie. I think that there's a few 
rest of them because they were finally announced. They announced them in two parts, half, one half a couple hours ago and one half about, I don't know, an hour ago. And social networks have kind of best picture, thinking of best actor, of course, Colin Firth for the King's Speech for Best Actress. I'm going to mispronounce this. I'll say Kim Hai-ja won for the South Korean drama Mother, a film I really want to see. It's really good. Um, this one has runners-up, runners-up for Best Actor, Edgar Ramirez, and for Best Actress, Jennifer Lawrence for Winter's Bone. Grant, I know you just recently saw Winter's Bone. Do you think that Jennifer Lawrence can figure into the Best Actress conversation? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I really enjoyed that movie, you know, and it, it felt like a film noir, kind of mystery, like detective story. Absolutely. Set in the, this really, you know, this unique environment that we have not really gotten you know, to explore in movies. Uh, it's like this Ozark Mafia movie, like Moonshine Mafia uh, kind of film. And I think that she, of course, she carries it, and I think it's a great film, and a lot of that uh, is to her credit. So sure, yes, she definitely deserves to be nominated, but I haven't seen Black Swan yet. I don't know. I'm not going to say she deserves to win yet. She should, she'll probably be on my list in the year for sure. And Corey bringing home another Best Supporting Actress prize was Jackie Weaver from Animal Kingdom, the Australian gangster movie. But a nice surprise for me, and people look at this as a 2009 release or 2010. It was released in the United States uh, this year. From a profit, the Best Supporting Actor winner was Niles Arstrup, who plays the Corsican Mafia leader in A Profit, which I think is awesome. It's a great performance, and it's just nice to see that movie recognized. Yeah, Los Angeles critics tend to go their own way with their awards, but uh, you know that is, that is a great performance. It's a great movie, and uh, it's good to see some recognition for A Profit um, this year, even though I'm sure it turned up on a lot of Best Foreign Language Film lists. David Fincher wins Best Director. Best Screenplay, of course, predictable, was Aaron Sorkin. A nice note also, Trent Reznor and actress Ross shared the award for Best Musical Score with uh, Alexander Desplat for Roman Polanski's Ghost Rider. That's great. So that's a great Do you agree with that, Corey? I think the Ghost Rider, I haven't. The Ghost Rider has a great score, a terrific, uh, almost Bernard Herrmann throwback score. It's, it's yeah. really phenomenal. But uh, um, I, I'd, I'd still say my favorite score of the year is probably Hans Zimmer in Inception. That's, I think that's a soundtrack you can just listen to wherever and still get pumped up like you're watching the movie. Yeah, and I've just watched the movie with the score and it only gets better as you watch. I watched it one time on Blu-ray now and it's just, it's just fantastic. I'm so torn between that and the social network is my favorites of the year so far, and same with the scores, too. Their scores are my favorite of the year, but I do look forward to seeing Ghost Rider, which is available on DVD now. Yep. Well, Graham, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate the time, as always, and, of course, the $12 you spend per movie up there. Oh, this was 13 actually. I never talked about prices or percentages, but <laughs> it's, uh, we're, we're struggling, you know. We've got Tron coming out. Probably going to have to drop a 20 spot on that for 3D. It's tough. It's ridiculous up there. I'm sorry you have to go through that, but it's just a painful reality. And they should be giving you a Blu-ray when you walk out of the movie. Yeah. Or at least like some kind of merchandise, like a, a Tron keychain or... You want all good things happen. 
percent we see on Rotten Tomatoes, and it didn't do extremely well at the box office this weekend, only making I think eighteen million. Thereabouts, which is is not a bad number necessarily, but when you're talking about these kinds of stars in this kind of studio, you want to make a little more than that. I do think it has to fall on this list, though, if we're judging it by this criteria and the performance that or the reception it got from critics. It's not great, and it's not particularly good for that matter. But in no way is it the turkey that most of these mainstream critics insist that it is. Again, I don't understand it. The stars aren't even on their best game here, not by a long shot. But nothing ever annoyed me about this film. So therefore, I really don't get what the big deal is, right? Oh, yeah, you know, I'll buy that. You know, I had the same reaction to that movie, uh, even though I, I did find, I guess, its flashier cousin from back in the summer uh, a little bit more appealing, ultimately. Uh, my number four is sort of a, a what has been termed a misguided attempt at uh, recapturing some some magic from a couple days ago, or from, from a couple decades ago. Uh, Oliver Stone's sequel, Wall Street, Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps. Um, I think that uh, Graham and I were bigger fans of this movie than you were, but uh, again, it's, I, I think it deserves better than the sort of indifferent repu- uh, reputation that uh, critics afforded it. It's got very good performances from Shia LaBeouf, who you know, I never expected to say that, uh, but he's very good in the movie. Terry Mulligan is very good, and, and Michael Douglas uh, sort of fits back into his Gordon Gecko role with a surprising amount of ease and, and uh, pathos, I'd say, especially near the end of the film. Uh, again, not great, um, but it has enough moments to justify its existence, which is, I guess, more than you can say about Oliver Stone's movies this decade, or a lot of them. I definitely think it has a nice, cozy little spot in that not great, not bad category that we keep referring to here. And my number four, actually, I watched this last night, and I haven't seen it. I read about it not too long ago, or I guess a few months ago. It's the winning season. From now on, we're going to run practices mornings and afternoons. From now on until the end of the season, I don't want you to think about anything but basketball. I don't even want you to dream about anything else. What about schoolwork? Yeah, all right, schoolwork, basketball and schoolwork. We can't forget about our families. No, no, uh, family's important. I'm not asking you to take me that literally. What about global warming? Excuse me? The planet's dying. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, don't you care? All right, all right. I don't want you to think about anything but basketball, schoolwork, what'd you say? Families. Families and global warming. Okay? Got it? It's in the red box. It's in, you know, the blockbuster kiosks now. But this is a dark comedy, again, starring Sam Rockwell as this down-and-out, has-been alcoholic who is asked to coach this high school girls' basketball team. This movie never really pretends to shy away from sports movie stereotypes, but thankfully it employs what made films like Bad News Bears, the original, and, say, A League of Their Own work, which is this frank, good-hearted, and often profane humor really emphasized in the interplay between Rockwell and these girls that are in this movie. And in it are Rooney Mara from Social Network. Yeah, she's in it. And Emma Roberts, I think her name is, from It's Kind of a Funny Story. Rob Corddry has a supporting performance. And this actress, and forgive me for not knowing her name, but she's a fantastic actress. She was Hilary Swank's mother in Million Dollar Baby. Shonda Martindale. Right, and she's fantastic in Paris de Jetem and Alexander Payne's little segment. Fantastic. And she's also in it. But it's just this nice, winning little comedy. And not necessarily a great basketball movie, but in terms of the characters, Sam Rockwell's performance is dynamite. It's one of his best performances I've ever seen, a great comedic role. So the winning season, underrated, underseen. 
seen on film. I think Edgar Wright really does bring a lot to the table from a creative standpoint. And if he can get out of a place from here creatively, I look forward to it. I can't wait for his next movie. And I can't wait to watch this movie again. I actually have it at home right now. And I hope to watch it this evening. I haven't seen it since the theater. My dad watched it this morning, and he called me and told me, I really like this movie. And I think that's great. And I think that this movie is going to find life on DVD soon enough. I think that this is one that high school and college kids are just really going to dig the more and more they watch it. My number two is Cemetery Junction, which is this light and fluffy British coming-of-age story directed by two of my personal favorites. So I might be a little biased here. Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant is their feature film directing debut together. It doesn't really tell you anything you haven't already heard within these types of stories. This is just your typical coming-of-age story about these punk guys who want to get out of their small town and move on to bigger and better things. But these characters, to me, are extremely likable, and it's hard to ever root against the movie. What really works for me, though, is this dynamic between the lead actor, Christian Cook, and his romantic interest, Felicity Jones. I think that these two have this incredible, undeniable chemistry, strengthened by some really top-notch and fast-paced dialogue from Gervais and Merchant. And I really kind of wish that they had leaned more on those devices than they did throughout the entire movie. Instead, they did tell the story of these three friends, and this romance sort of plays a supporting role in the movie, and there are other things that play supporting roles that I think kind of slow this movie down just a little bit, but I really do think that it's likable enough to say anything bad about it. Well, then, after your glowing recommendation, when you previously talked about this, I still haven't seen this movie, so I don't know what my problem is. I love Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, too, so I, I should get on it, I guess. Uh, my number one, I guess this is somewhat predictable, given my of this movie uh, in the past, but it's Mark Romanek's Never Let Me Go, uh, a movie that didn't really get the wide release it, it deserved, but even if it had, would probably have not made any money. It, it certainly didn't make any money in limited release, uh, because it is a straight-up downer of a, of a motion picture. There's no question. Uh, it's tremendously sad, but, you know, when it all, when it all shakes out, this might be, if not my, my favorite movie of the year, certainly uh, right up near the top. Starring, uh, I mean, it, it's got uh, Carrie Mulligan delivering another Academy Award-worthy performance uh, in the lead role, as well as up-and-coming star Andrew Garfield and, and Kira Knightley, who is perhaps delivering one of her strongest performances as these three uh, young British uh, people who, I don't know how much I want to give away, but it's sad. I haven't seen it, so I don't give any away. Okay. I, I won't. For your benefit, thank you. But just, just know that it's, it's one of the more touching, beautifully shot films of the year that needs to be seen, deserves to be seen, and it just wasn't. It just wasn't. That, that's, that's a shame. I know what you think, Cassie. I know you think that you and Tommy would have made a more natural couple. And you believe that there's a chance that Tommy and I will split up someday. And when we do, perhaps that will be your chance with Tommy. Chance to do it right this time. You see, the thing is, Kathy, although Tommy really likes you as a friend, he just doesn't see you that way. You told me about the porno magazine. <laughs> we had quite a laugh about it. 
doesn't understand what you were doing. But I did.
Kids Are Alright will be available in Redbox and in Netflix, so yeah. I look forward to finally seeing that. Coming nationwide in Tuscaloosa, at the Cop Hollywood 16 this week, The Tourist, starring Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. I might end up seeing this, you never know. I didn't see the second one. Well, the second one's not very good. I barely saw the first one. That's so certainly not very good. Possibly, rumor has it, coming this Friday in Huntsville. I would imagine that the Rave Theater, but I could be wrong, Black Swan, no word on whether it or Danny Boyle's film, 127 Hours, will make it near us, but we are certainly still hoping. Yeah, like I said, there's rumors that Black Swan will be expanding to 1,000-plus theaters uh, on December 22nd. If that's the case, it might end up at the Cobb. Uh, it will certainly end up on at least one screen in Birmingham. So you never know. Crossing my fingers. Yeah, sure too. Next week, we are all definitely in for a treat. If all goes as planned, Corey and I are slated to see Joel and Ethan Cohen's new film, True Grit, which is the re-adaptation of Charles Portis's novel. We're extremely excited about the prospect of seeing and reviewing this early, so let's all keep our fingers crossed. I'm pumped. I'm really pumped. Me too. Come on, brother, Judy. Yeah. Good one. Yep. Well, you can email any of your feedback to 90.7movies at gmail.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Aspect Radio or Twitter.com slash Aspect Radio. You can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. And we'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And you can now find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Aspect Radio. So head on over and become a fan by clicking the like button. Do check us out on AL.com, the state's number one news and information service. Just scroll down to the entertainment section on the homepage or search Aspect Radio. Don't forget to visit our friend Mascalici's website, filmnerds.com, where we will all have a new feature up there. Our December recommends these where we talk about our favorite Christmas movies on the most time with my contribution. Many thanks to WVUA station manager Claire Brucker, program director Chris Dotson, production director Cliff Kyle, and our friend Brandon Andrews for their support and contributions to the show throughout this entire semester. We hope that they had a really strong semester and ended well during their exam week last week. And thanks again to our guest, my brother, Grant Flanagan. You can follow him on Twitter at twitter.com slash gfmmi, or you can follow his blog at Cam. Tumblr.com. That's Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, dash, Cam, C-A-M, dot Tumblr.com. And until next week, I am Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. Cleaned out the iceboxes quick as a flash. Why, that Grinch even took the last can of hoo-hash. Right, boys.